I've been asked to speak this morning on a topic has becoming, that has been uh, an increasingly uh, heavy burden on my heart as I watch the church develop. And for many years, I have been concerned about the way in which we read the Scriptures and the way especially in which we don't read the Scriptures. I've been asked to talk about the only Bible Jesus had helping Christians recover a love for the first Testament. We'll talk about that last phrase in a few minutes. But I am really keen on the first part of that title this morning, the only Bible Jesus had. But I'm a bit concerned about the second part, helping Christians recover a love for the First Testament. The word recover assumes we once had it, a love for what you call the Old Testament. I know a few people who have this love. Several of these have had a powerful influence on my life. My father was a bivocational minister, farmer, who was deeply committed to the entire Scriptures as the Word of God. But like many others, he was much more at home in the New Testament than in the only Bible that Jesus and the disciples had before the apostles began to write their own inspired and canonical works. The person who turned my life around on this matter was a man named Reverend Henry Harder, who graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, and after a decade or so of teaching at our denominational school down the road here in Fresno, he came to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Don't you love that? It just rolls off your lips. Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, while I was a student there at the university. Before he came, I hardly ever heard of a, uh, I hadn't heard of a pastor who would dare to devote 50% of his preaching to the only Bible Jesus had. But for the first time, the other 50% began to come alive for me. It made a huge difference in his preaching, the First Testament, the only Bible Jesus had. And he quickly connected with a bunch of Jewish rabbis in Saskatoon. His neighbors, his sermons were salted and peppered with anecdotes and perspectives that he picked up from these folks. Shortly after I graduated, the Lord called him away to another sphere of ministry. But with hindsight, I, have, I, I often think that the Lord sent him to Saskatoon to be the pastor of our church for two years just to get a hold of me. And it worked to some extent. 
He was the one who ignited the spark on my heart and, the, and mind for the Hebrew Scriptures. I am confident that if he had not showed up in my life, then I wouldn't be here today. I had no idea how life-giving the First Testament could be and how living it was. And there it was, right under my nose. He helped me not recover it. He helped me discover it. And I think in many places, that is what needs to be on the agenda. Helping Christians discover a love for the First Testament. For many people, the First Testament is a dead book. And there are many reasons for this. There are historical reasons. The First Testament concerns times and places so far removed from our own, we cannot imagine it speaking to us. How, did it, how did, would its authors know what concerns us? There are cultural reasons. The First Testament seems preoccupied with cultural issues that bear little connection to the world in which we live. And there are literary reasons. The First Testament contains literature that's really tough to interpret and that's often very strange. Gentlemen, don't try quoting the Song of Songs to your wives. Your belly is a heap of wheat. She would not accept that as a compliment. But there it is. It's an expression of his love and his delight in his wife. What are we supposed to do with this? And then there are ethical issues. The First Testament seems to represent an ethic that, that many think is vastly inferior to the ethic of love in the New Testament. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What you do to me, I will do to you. And even God seems to be a part of the problem because he seems to be preoccupied with vengeance and violence. About the time that I started to get excited about the First Testament, my sister, my only sister, she said to me, Dan, how can you read that stuff? God is always so angry. Really? Well, in my mind, the biggest problem is actually theological rather than all this trivial stuff. Our theological systems have dug huge ditches between the Testaments. With Lutherans, the problem is the stark antithesis between, they say, between, they see between the law-based culture of ancient Israel and the grace-based culture of the New Testament. These are two different worlds. With Anabaptists, those are my roots, the problems are both ethical and theological. How can we justify the Israelites wiping out the Canaanites? I get a lot of uh, emails from people. What's with that? But what's even worse is how can Yahweh, the God of Israel, be the one telling them to do that? 
What sort of God is that? And of course, with dispensationalists, and that's where I grew up. My father was one of these. It's a theological structure that encouraged us to discount segments of Scripture that classical versions of of the movement, at least, declared applied to one day. I know there are some people who cannot preach from the Sermon on the Mount because that's for the Jews in the millennium. Well, if we're going to do that with some New Testament texts, it's all the worse for the First Testament, the Old Testament. Feeding these dichotomies are preoccupations with the Pauline epistles, which represent a sort of canon within a canon, and we take his apparently categorical negative statements about the law as the lenses through which we should read all of Scripture, so that the New Testament is thought to present a solution to the sin question that is fundamentally distinct from the solution presented in the First Testament, which obviously failed. In radical circles, the New Testament fixes the problem of the Old Testament. Does God ever do anything that is a problem that he needs to fix? There are issues with that point of view. For all these reasons, we hear people like Andy Stanley today calling on Christians to unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. Now, what Stanley says is not new. What is new is that a public figure comes right out of the closet and publicly declares it. And I'm I'm not surprised, but I'm shocked and dismayed at how many sympathetic hearers he has got. And then we wonder why this is a dead book. The answers are ready to hand. And until we start reading the whole Scripture as the Word of God for us, nothing will change. In our time, we have put far more stock infallible interpreters and theologians and their comments on Scripture than we have on Moses and David and Isaiah and Habakkuk and all your other favorite First Testament prophets. They actually spoke with divine inspiration and divine authority, the eternal Word of God. What can we do to help the church recover the First Testament, even if this means helping us discover it for the first time, the only Bible that Jesus and the apostles knew. I offer my prescription today for this problem as a hope and a prayer that revival might break out and that three-fourths of the Bible will come alive for us. Not, I can't bring it alive, but perhaps we can encourage us why it must and how it might. Can these bones live? I think they can. And I offer to you a few, hopefully, helpful hints 
in making that work. First, for the Scriptures to come alive, all of them, we need to recover Jesus' own disposition toward the First Testament. A consideration of this topic alone could fill the whole morning, and I would love to do that, but I, 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 I cannot. Uh, let me just take you to one, uh, one small text. Matthew 5, 17 to 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, that's the letter Yod in the Hebrew alphabet, nor the least stroke of a pen. That's that little dash at the bottom of a letter that looks like that, and you stick this on, and that makes it a B instead of a K. (laughs) It changes the letter from a B to K or a K to B the other way. Well, it may be helpful here to set the background for Jesus' statement which is embedded in the document we call the Sermon on the Mount. Commentators on this sermon commonly remind us of the reminiscences of Sinai narrative in Exodus, and then they interpret Jesus on the mountain as a sort of second Moses teaching his disciples like Moses had done the Israelites. But, and I offer this to you in soft lead pencil, but in my view, this reflects a very low Christology. As I learned from our Jewish rabbi friends at Wheaton for the past 10 years, two or three times a year, half a dozen to 10, 12 of our us faculty meet with a half a dozen Jewish rabbis, and we talk about everything. We're just trying to be friends. They said, why can't you be our friends before you try to evangelize us? <laughs> Well, we're trying to be friends, and, and we talk about their texts and their issues, and they love to read our texts. Well, the second, the second time that we met, they said, can we read the Sermon on the Mount together? These are Jewish rabbis. And he said, that's a great idea. So when we got together, everybody had worked through it on their own. When we got together, one of our guys gave an evangelical Christian interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. And then one of the rabbis gave a Jewish interpretation on the Mount. Well, he had 10 minutes and he used slightly more than his 10 minutes, as we always do. But I will never forget the sight and the sound and the posture thereof. When at the end of his presentation, he stepped back, leaned against the wall, and then asked us, who does the person talking think he is? That's a very critical question. After a minute or two of awkward silence, he answered his own question. He thinks he's God. And that's why we reject him, because that's blasphemy. 
He's all right with you thinking he's a Moses figure. They're even all right with thinking Jesus is a Messiah figure. They've had lots of Messiah traditions. But it is that Jesus claims to be God. That's the problem. And this is what he spotted. Well, after hearing him, I went back to that text and I worked my way through it. And I became absolutely convinced he was exactly right. The person who was now before his apostles and the rest who were gathered there was the same person who, more than a thousand years earlier, had stepped down from, come down from heaven and stepped down on Mount Sinai, and the people there heard his voice. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's here. That's who is speaking. This is the same person who now stands or actually, in Matthew, he sits before the people as if enthroned and he speaks from the throne. He says, you have heard that it has been said, but I say to you, no prophet ever does that. Moses never did Moses never does. But Jesus does. It comes from the lips of the same God of Israel and the King of heaven and earth who a millennium earlier for a year and a half had communicated from his temporary terrestrial palace at Sinai. That same person now declares that I have not come to dismantle or abolish the Torah or the prophets, but I have come to fulfill the entire canon of Scripture. Well, what does that word fulfill actually mean? It's ambiguous. It could mean I've come to put the whole thing into effect. No prophet, not even Moses, could do that. It could mean, I have come to embody before you its ethics and values perfectly. No prophet could do that. Or it could be, I have come to declare its full meaning and significance. What it does not mean, I've come to put an end to it. Cannot mean that. For Jesus, the canonical assemblage of Torah and prophets represents a fixed, authoritative, permanent, irrevocable record of the very words of God. Romans 3.2 expression. What advocates of unhitching the First Testament from Christian faith do is not only foolish... It flies in the face of God's own declarations. What chutzpah, presumption, arrogance. How can you do away with that which Jesus himself declares eternal truth? Now, how intent Jesus was to fulfill the entire canon of Scripture is evident in his ministry especially the way he grounds everything he does on prior revelation graciously revealed to Israel. He often prefaces his statements with comments like, it is written. 
That means it's authoritative. And he explicitly quotes the scriptures as authoritative. I can give you a whole list of these. If we have marinated in a book like Deuteronomy, I grew up in a home where German was the mother language, and my father at the breakfast table every morning we had we, we had devotions. He'd read scripture, and and then we'd all stand in good Russian style to pray. When he read from Deuteronomy, he read from Fifth Moses. That's what it's called in Deuteronomy. Fifth Moses, First Moses, Second Moses. Third. That's better than Deuteronomy, which leads us astray. If we've ever marinated in this book for any length of time, we will recognize that even a familiar text that the, like the Lord's Prayer is steeped in the language of Deuteronomy. Our Father... That's straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1. Sons you are to the Lord your God. The whole thing is full of Deuteronomy was Jesus' favorite book. He alluded to and quoted from it more than he did from any other book. And yet it's dead to us. When we recite the Lord's Prayer together, as we often do in our church, we are expressing our thoughts in the language of the Torah, the book of Deuteronomy. It's a living text. Second, we need to recover the apostles' disposition toward the First Testament Scriptures. In the book of Acts, the apostles laced their speeches with quotations and allusions to the First Testament from beginning to end. To them, it's important to demonstrate that the coming of Jesus represents a climactic moment of divine revelation, the record of which is preserved in the First Testament. Paul represents the apostolic perspective in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Verses 15 to 17. Now, although most of Paul's letters will have been circulating by the time he wrote this letter to Timothy, they were circulating. When Paul uses the expression, uh, all Scripture, he's not referring to his own writings. He is referring to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the First Testament. But what, and what he says about it is striking. What does he teach us about the First Testament? These scriptures are God breathed, which means they are inspired divine literary creations, and their breath gives life to us. God breathed. This unique expression alludes to Deuteronomy 8.3. People do not live by bread alone, but by live, they live by everything that comes from the mouth of God. 
Well, what's that everything? It's interesting that in the Hebrew there, it doesn't say they live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It doesn't say they live by every law that comes from the mouth of God. It says by everything, whatever comes from the mouth of God. Well, what was the first thing that came out of your mouth this morning? Breath. Breath. Yes, that's what this is. They are inspired. They are breathed by God, and that's what gives them life. As Moses' Torah address remind us, we should certainly not restrict this everything to the Lord's commands. They come from God's mouth. They do indeed. But for every command, or before every command, you have to hear gospel. And it's as simple as in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, that you, as you call them. They don't start with law. If you start with, you shall have no other gods besides me, that's moralism. But it starts with gospel. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So that what follows is the appropriate response, divinely revealed, that you might that you might know how to, what kind of thank you God finds acceptable. And it is a thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. They are God-breathed, and that means they yield life. Well, there's a, there, there's a First Testament text that actually talks about this in Deuteronomy chapter 34. And it's all over, chapter 31, it's echoed all over the book of Deuteronomy. We have a very interesting text. So Moses wrote this Torah, and he gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant. Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission, at the Feast of Booths in the Tabernacles, that's where we are. It's very appropriate for us to read this text this morning. When all Israel comes together before the Lord your God at the place he'll choose, you shall read this Torah in front of all the, in their hearing, assemble the people, men, women, children, alien in your town, so they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and observe all the words of this Torah. And elsewhere he will say, that you may, that they may live. There is a chain here. Reading leads to hearing, which leads to learning, which leads to fearing, which does not mean fright here. Because what you're hearing is not just laws, do this or else. The laws are always preceded by gospel, and that's why when you read the book of Deuteronomy, keep your eyes open and your pen, pen handy to mark All the places where the Lord says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord who cared for you. I am the Lord who entered into covenant relationship with you. I am the Lord who is giving the land to you. It's all grace. Keep that in your mind. And then fearing comes to mean trusting awe. In Deuteronomy, that's what it often means. Trusting awe. Fear that you may obey. Oh, that's then, this is no longer legalism. 
This is the response of trusting all, uh, the demonstration of trusting all in response to the grace and with full gratitude for God's salvation. And then you will live. That's what comes out of the mouth of God. The scriptures, which you hear, which you learn, and then you fear, and then you obey, and then you live. What else does Paul say about the scriptures? They are useful, valuable, profitable, effective. The point is, they accomplish the goals for which they are sent. They work. We've all experienced that. We've witnessed it when people, when people grasp the Word of God. Or should I say, when the Word of God grasps them, they come alive and they're changed. Third, they are effective for teaching instruction. The Greek word reflects precisely the semantic range of Hebrew Torah, which does not mean law. It means instruction, and it comes in many forms. They're effective for refuting error. They're effective for correcting faults, for training in righteousness. They're effective for creating a godly person, adequate, capable, Uh, fit for every good work. That's what the Scriptures do. They transform us like this. We need to regain a confidence in the power of the Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture to do its work empowered by the Holy Spirit. So that righteousness, righteousness you shall pursue becomes the result. A righteous people. A third lesson. We need to recover the disposition of the early post-apostolic church. Now I'm getting into a world that I know very little about. And chances are one or two or three of you here know even less than I do. (laughs) But in any case, when we look at the early post-apostolic church leaders, we find that although by the end of the second century, many Christian preachers and theologians had adopted a bunch of questionable hermeneutical practices, allegorizing everything and whatever else, based on their interpretations of Homer and Greek texts, Texts like First Clement, Justin Martyrs, uh, Tertullian, Augustine, their books are laced with First Testament scriptures, not just as proof texts, but as a text to be heard and to inform us on how we need to think, believe, trust and live. None of the fathers expressed any doubt about the authority of the whole First Testament, let alone advocating advocated hitching, unhitching it from their faith. Although they often stoop to many, you know, problematic, nasty anti-Semitism, and that reared its ugly head very, very early. They operated with a high view of the First Testament as their scriptures. 
And of course, we move then to the Reformers. The high view of the First Testament held by the Reformers, especially Martin Luther and John Calvin, we all know of this. And the doctrine of sola scriptura embodies it. Calvin's hermeneutic, on the, on the whole, I find to be quite superior to Luther's, though he was equally adamant that the First Testament scriptures, as accepted in Jewish tradition, were equal in authority to the New Testament. And John Calvin especially made every effort to keep the two parts of our Bible hitched tightly together. If this is the view of evangelical Christendom down through history, the question is, how did we go so wrong? How did we get to this point where we never read it? When's the last time you read Leviticus for devotions? When's the last time you heard a gospel sermon from Leviticus 4, 5, and 6 where he's got nine long paragraphs on the details of the sacrifices? A year or two ago, I was asked to speak at a men's conference on why do Christians need to read the Old Old Testament? That's their word for it. Why should Christians? Well, I started by reading from Leviticus chapter 4, and I read about the first 20, uh, I, I read about 20 or 25 verses as boringly as we always do when we read the Old Testament. And after I was done, I asked the crowd gathered there, as I was reading, did any of you hear the gospel? There were 300 people in the crowd. <laughs> Not a single one of those 600 hands went up. They didn't hear the gospel, even though at the end of every paragraph there is, thus the priest shall make atonement for your sins, and they will be forgiven. And they will be forgiven. And they will be forgiven nine or ten times in that stretch. There's the gospel. This is what the ancient pagans all longed desperately for. They knew the gods were angry. They knew they had sinned. And they knew they needed to do something about it. But A, they didn't know which god they had offended. They didn't know what the sin was. And they didn't know what it would take to fix it. So they experimented and they tried to figure out. But they always came away from that sacrifice or whatever it was, that observant, feeling more confused and wondering than they did when they came. Did it work? Did we change the scowl of the God into a smile? That was the point. The Lord reveals crystally clearly how it works so that when David is forgiven, he says, oh, the privilege of the one whose transgression is covered, whose sins are forgiven. My sins are blotted out, I know. My friends, that's gospel. It's all over Leviticus, all over there. Well, what else do we need? We need to join the scribal order of Ezra. We need to start a movement, Ezraites in our day. 
After reviewing Ezra's pedigree and his migration to Jerusalem in Ezra 719, verse 10 summarizes the commitment that underlay Ezra's work for the reconstituted community in Jerusalem. Ezra fixed his mind determined. His New Year's resolution. (laughs) He fixed his mind on studying the Torah of Yahweh, applying the Torah of Yahweh, and teaching the Torah of Yahweh. Hey, if you're not going to study, it'll never come alive for you. And it has to be in this order. If we teach before we've studied, I mean, that's dangerous. That yields heresy. If we teach before we've applied, hey, that's hypocrisy. The speaker needs to be the embodiment of the message. Uh, This is critical. This requires deep study involved in a series of steps. How do we study the Scriptures? Well, for one thing, I am convinced we need to start reading the Scriptures aloud. The Scriptures were not written to be read privately or or silently. The Hebrew word for read is cry out. And when we hear the Scriptures, we need to hear the voice of God in the Scriptures. So we need to read entire compositions. The Sermon on the Mount was written so that you read the whole thing at once. Paul's epistles, the book of Romans, Read the whole thing at once because it's the whole sermon. They they didn't have verse numbers. They didn't have chapter numbers. There's no such thing. If you ask Paul, what's your favorite verse in Scripture? He said, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about because they didn't number them. These were continuous texts. Secondly, we need to involve ourselves in inductive wrestling with the text. And I'm especially concerned here for those whom God calls to shepherd the flock of God. They particularly need to wrestle with the text so that what they share with the people is the overflow of what they have learned of the text message to them. Wrestle with it. Work with it. And then we need focused contemplation on what does it mean to me? After you figure out what does it mean. Did you hear that? What it means to me is the last question you ask, not the first. What it means to you may be way off track. And the authoritative message is not on or not in what you can make it mean. The authoritative message is in what the author of that text was trying to get across to his people and then translated into our own ways of saying and applying things. Fifth, we need to recognize the unity of all Scripture as a record of God's revelation that climaxes in his incarnation, his, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. This is what I actually feel most passionate about. We need to read the whole Bible as a single whole story. 
story. That's what I'm trying to do in this book that just came out last week on covenant, the framework of God's grand plan of redemption. For a long time, actually long before Martin Luther, we have been digging ditches between the Testaments. And then we wonder why we have to work so hard to bridge that ditch. Well, in my preface, I say, I offer this book as 20 shovels full of dirt as my small contribution to close that ditch. It's one story written in such a way that almost 40% of what we have here is from the New Testament as the culmination of the story that God began in Genesis and ended in Revelation. Well, actually, it doesn't end it in the book of Revelation. It ends when the whole world is reconstituted and we are all ultimately redeemed and restored fully. This is what we need to do. We need to recognize the unity of all Scripture. Jesus did this, beginning with Moses and the prophets. He explained to them what he said about himself in all the Scriptures. Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything that's written about me in the Torah of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, these cryptic statements by the gospel writer and by Jesus here have provided grounds for all sorts of weird and strange and illegitimate and foolish allegorizing and everything. It's as if people need to, people need to see Jesus in every verse of Scripture, the incarnate Christ in every verse of Scripture, and in the process that drown out its message, its true message. Well, at this point, Jesus and Luke, the gospel writer, are not thinking only about Jesus, the Messiah. In fact, if you interpret that text as, a, uh, as saying that the Messiah is in every text, and Jesus pointed out how every verse of Scripture speaks about him, you'll be off track. Because the Messiah is a particular part of the revelation of Jesus. Jesus is the son of David, the servant of God who gives his life for the sheep. It's a royal figure all the way through. Well, if you read through the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if you read through those books, how many messianic texts are there actually? One, two, three, four, five, maybe, maybe six. And so we're asking, where's Jesus if, he's, if, the, if, the, if the texts aren't messianic? But our problem is we have too low a view of the First Testament, and we have too low a view of the New Testament, and we have a low, too low a view of Jesus. For John writes... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we observed His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Son, who is from the Father, full of grace and truth. What? The Word was God. Or Matthew one twenty one. 
the angel of the Lord, the the messenger from heaven, interpreted the significance of Mary's conception. You shall call his name Jesus, for he is the one who will save his people from their sins. He's given the name Jesus. Because he's the Savior. That's what Jesus means. Jesus. Yehoshua. It means. And so we say, well, Jesus, Jesus is a second Joshua. No, he's not. That's a low Christology. Joshua's name says nothing about Joshua. Remember Numbers 13. In Numbers 13, you've got a list of the names of all of the scouts, you call them spies, that Moses sent to the promised land. And there is Joshua representing Ephraim. And then there's a little parenthetical comment. Hosea, whom I named Yehoshua. Moses named him. Hosea means he will save, or he has saved. And the question is who? Well, it depends where you live. If you live in Tyre, it's Baal Melkart will save. If you live in Babylon, Marduk will save. If you live in Egypt, it's Ra will save. What does Moses do? He says, no, we can't do that. In the light of the exodus the point of which was, then you will know that I am Yahweh, the Lord. Yehoh. We used to say Jehovah. That's the point. When Moses renames Joshua, he gets the point of the Exodus. Joshua's name points to Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, it says nothing about Joshua. And so now when, when the angel says to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save, save what? His people from Egypt. This is Exodus language. Where was Joshua in the Exodus story? Nowhere. Nowhere. We don't learn about Joshua until after they had crossed the Red Sea. They'd been saved, and then we're, we're, we're fighting the Amalekites, and Joshua's out there as a general. But that's not the Exodus. Joshua had nothing to do with Israel's salvation. Who did it? God, Yahweh. So what this angel is saying to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, or she shall call, for he will save his people from Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Paul does the same thing. Well, Matthew then goes on to say, look, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here's one case where the name says something about the person who has the name. (laughs) He is God with us. Yes, The Jesus who would walk the streets of Jerusalem and the roads of Palestine ministering to the people and announcing the arrival of his kingdom. This is the one whom John the baptizer, or do we say Baptist here? He was a Baptist. 
When people ask, who, you, who are you? What did he say? I am the voice of one crying out in the desert, make straight the way of Yahweh, which the Greeks translated in the Septuagint as the Lord, which then finds its way in. But if you look in your Bibles, Lord in that context is capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. And when they do that, they always mean the personal name of God. That is the John the Baptist knew he was preparing the way for Yahweh, Jehovah, God, the God of Israel. And he's back. He's right here. Paul does the same thing when he says in Romans 10, 13, Peter does it in Acts chapter 2, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord is not a name. That's a title, which we get from the Greek translation of Joel. The name of God, he has only one name. It's Y-H-W-H. We don't know how to pronounce it because the Jews stopped pronouncing it. They thought they might mispronounce it and invoke the curse on them. I'm, I'm sad about that because when you, when you speak of somebody by title rather than by name, you mean you lose something. We have very good friends. We were married in the same year, and we've done lots of celebrations of anniversaries together and whatever else. But when we are together, my friend always talks about my wife. Doesn't she have a name? She has a name. Now, in the company of strangers here, I think I've alluded to my wife, Ellen. She has a name. She's more than that person who holds an office. You shall call whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. There's only one name, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, Y-H-W-H, which translates in the New Testament to Jesus. That's what, that's not a dictionary definition, but that's what the name signifies. As Yahweh, He is the Savior. Jesus is that. So, when I read the First Testament, wherever I hear of the Lord, the God of Israel, guess what? Who is that? It's Jesus. And when God revealed himself to Moses on the mountain, you remember Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. Or is it glory? I'd like to see your glory. What does God say? I will let my goodness pass by you. And Moses goes up and he says, and, and then he hears, I am Yahweh, Yahweh gracious, compassionate, long of nose, not Pinocchio. It's an idiom for extremely patient, full of chesed, truth, who forgives every sin, but I will not leave the guilty unpunished. That's Jesus. And when John writes at the beginning of his epistle, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is a summary of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. 
John is hereby writing that when Jesus is before us, that person who stood before Moses is here. He's the embodiment of all of that. The Scriptures will not open to us, come alive for us, until we recognize that the Jesus of the New Testament is the Yahweh, the God of Israel of the old. It's the same person here in the flesh. In our day, uh, the wind has blown my pages apart here. Let's go to number six. We need to recognize the Scriptures as one story, and the main character is the same person all the way through. That was the point of all that harangue. Number six, we need to rethink our nomenclature for the Hebrew Scriptures, both as a whole and in its parts. Uh, Let's begin with how we refer to the Hebrew Bible, which we generally call the Old Testament. You've heard me using over and over again already. First Testament, First Testament. What you call something matters. Any of you have ever tried to publish anything, you know that. Or those of you who run companies, the logo matters. What you call something matters. And when we call it the Old Testament, that matters. Why? I am convinced that the problem is not necessarily testament, though that is a slight problem, but the bigger problem is old. We live in a day where we worship novelty. Anything that's old is out of date. Now, Paul does use the expression Old Covenant in 2 Corinthians 3.14 when he speaks of the Israelites' minds being hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil is over their hearts. So he equates Old Covenant there and Moses... But it is clear that Paul is not thinking about the Hebrew Bible as a whole. He's thinking about that ritual system that was established at Sinai as a replica and a shadow institution that points to the real sacrifice of Christ up there that has come down now, but the people in his audience aren't getting it. He's not talking about the Old Testament. In our day, when we worship novelty and despise antiquity, the connotations of old versus new differ significantly from what I am doing first versus second, or first versus new. I can, I can go with New Testament, because that's in the Bible. Old, old Testament is not. The, the New Testament never refers to the Old Testament as the Old Testament. And so, I think we do a disservice to the Word of God by using words that don't communicate truth. 
It miscommunicates. We worship newness. But when we say First Testament versus Old Testament, it suggests sequence, stage progression. That was phase one. We're now in phase two, not of a new story. The New Testament is a, not a brand new enterprise after the failed old system. God never does anything that's flawed. So that can't be the problem. No, the New Testament is the climax of the story begun there, and now we've come here to the New Testament. The incarnation of Jesus is the high point. I'll never forget a conversation I had in Australia with Bruce Winter, the former warden of the Tyndale Library in Cambridge, a noted New Testament scholar. I've got lots of New Testament scholarly friends. I do read the New Testament, too. It's great stuff there. But one, we were talking about what will it take to to make the whole Scripture come alive. And it was an animated conversation. I was so excited to have this conversation with him. You know, he said the first principle of biblical interpretation is tear out one page of the Bible. You'd never do that, would you? What was he referring to? It's this page, three-quarters of the way through. There's a white page, wasted page, teared out. It creates the impression that this is now a new document. No, no. Well, in a sense, it is a new document. But look at how Matthew, how it opens. Whoever set the order of the New Testament Scriptures knew what he was doing. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was a... What's he doing? He starts with a genealogy that links precisely to 11 of these, this formula we have 11 times in Genesis, but especially at the end of the book of Ruth where we have the genealogy of David... And now he's hooking into that genealogy of David, who is the father of a messianic hope. The author knows, or whoever put this canon together, knows that this is that which we've been waiting for. It's a new phase, the climax of the story. Now, we uh, do a couple of interesting things with the Scriptures when we read them. The Christocentric interpretation that I was alluding to earlier thinks that we need to find a hand pointing to Jesus in every verse of Scripture. If you're doing that, you'll be disappointed. There are lots of texts that they don't point to Jesus But, and this is where Chris Wright really helps me, every little bit of Scripture represents a stage on the way to Jesus. And it's only with hindsight that we recognize their significance in that grand story. 
God's grand plan of redemption. And so, when we talk about the only Bible Jesus had, talk about that which leads up to his being there right now. That's why he came not to abolish, but to fulfill. I'm here. That's it. This is the climax of the story, and that's what we should be grasping from this. We need a lot of uh, therapy in how we think about the only Bible Jesus had. But perhaps the best therapy would involve going back to the Bible itself. And I'm going to skip over a bunch of this. We've talked about that briefly. What we call stuff matters. We call the first five books of the Bible the law. Well, how much of Genesis is law? Two verses, circumcision, whoever sheds human blood by a human shall his blood. There's not much, not much more. Arise, get up, go to the land that I'll show you. That's a command, but it's not a law. How much of Exodus is a law? The first 18 chapters, chapters 12 and 13, probably Passover, whatever. But the rest, it's story, it's gospel. And even the last part of, uh, the last part of Exodus they give instructions for building the tabernacle. Is that law? How often did people do build the tabernacle? They did it once. <laughs> Some of you bought furniture at Ikea. I know what that's like. And you try putting the stuff together and it doesn't work. So what does your, your wife finally tells you, well, why don't you read the instructions? I've heard that one. <laughs> now, so you pick out the leaflet of instruction. Is that a law? No, no. These are instructions for how to do. It's a one-off deal. And that's what you have in chapters 25 to 31. Instructions for building the tabernacle. What you have then, uh, 32, 33, 34, that's a golden calf. That's story. And what you have in 35 to 40, that's, they built it. It's the story of how they built the tabernacle. It's story. It's not law. When you get to Leviticus, finally we have law, lots of it. Numbers is maybe one-fourth law. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy doesn't come to us as law. It opens up with, these are the words that Moses spoke. He began to explain this whole Torah, which is always translated nomos by the Greek translators, but so bad because Torah doesn't mean law. It means teaching, instruction. Greek has a word for that. Two words, actually, didascalia and didache. And I wonder what would have happened to the history of interpretation if the Greeks in the third century had rendered Torah with didache or didascalia instead of nomos. It would have changed the picture completely. So why is the Pentateuch called the Torah? Because Deuteronomy is the Torah. 
The word, the Torah, this document of the Torah appears 22 times in the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy is exact, illustrates what Torah means. And if you've ever read it, heard it aloud, you know it's not legislation. These are Moses' farewell sermons to his congregation. I'm out of here. This is my last shot. And he gives four sermons. It's like a Russian church service where they always have three or four sermons. And so he gives four sermons. And then chapter 32 is the closing hymn, Israel's National Anthem. And then chapter 33, the benediction. He blesses all the tribes. May the Lord be with you, bless you, and keep you. And then 32, he's off the scene. That's Deuteronomy. Go back home and read it out loud and pretend you've never heard any instruction on it as Deuteronomy, second law. That's not what it calls itself. And then this word Torah is expanded backwards to Numbers, Leviticus, Exodus, Genesis, so that by the time we get to the New Testament, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the nomos, meaning Torah, the prophets or the Psalms, the whole scripture, but Torah, we need to change our nomenclature for stuff to reflect what it is. We may even need to rethink our disposition toward Paul and what he says about the law. We need to remember that in his preaching, Paul cannot disagree with Moses. Did you hear that? Paul cannot contradict Moses. It's the same God who inspired both people, and both of them claim inspiration. They know what they're doing. Moses says repeatedly in Deuteronomy, I commanded you, or I spoke to you, I taught you exactly the way the Lord has commanded me. They're both inspired. And if Paul sounds like he is contradicting, and he often does, ask yourself, what, what, what's Paul's point? To whom's he talking? And he's talking to people who have twisted Moses all out of shape. And he's saying, if you want to use Moses that way, it'll kill you. But that wasn't Moses' view. In the final end, the therapy we need is the Scriptures. Here are a couple. Psalm 19.8. The Torah of the Lord is perfect because it kills. <laughs> Is that what it says? No. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart celebrate. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. More to be desired than they are they than gold, and even than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb, and the drippings of the honeycomb. It's an amazing psalm. These are the lenses we need to have when we read the First Testament. What a grace that God should have revealed himself and his will. Identifying what sin looks like, identifying himself by name, and then prescribing a system of rituals for them that actually worked. 
based on the finished work of Christ, the eternal sacrifice. And if Psalm 19 isn't enough, go to Psalm 119. 176 verses devoted to how I love your Torah, O Lord. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible, nobody ever tells God, I love you? I know after this, you're going to come to me and say, well, what about this verse? What about this? Yeah, your translations have it that way, but that's not what the Hebrew says. Nobody ever says, I love you, with the Hebrew word, I have, or Greek word, agapao. Not once. But in Psalm 119, a half a dozen times, how I love your Torah, O Lord. We are, we've got this thing so tipped over. We glibly tell the Lord, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. No biblical character would have sung that. We are the worst judges of the level of our love. Only God can judge. In any case, love is an action word, not a verbal word. If you love me, tell me. (laughs) Is that what Jesus says? If you love me, send roses. Write beautiful music. No, 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 no. If you love me, keep my commands. That's true. Love is action, demonstrating covenant commitment in actions that are for the benefit and the pleasure of the other person. That's love. That's love. They will talk about, I love the Torah, but they will never say, I measure up to what the word love means with reference to God. That only God can tell. But read Psalm 119 tonight out loud. Enjoy it. Put those lenses in your glasses, and it will come alive to the praise and the glory of God, to the transformation of your soul and the building of the church. To his name be all the glory and gratitude. Amen.